Uh, this morning we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and following. And if you turn to 1 Peter 3, 18, I, I will begin as you turn there with my excuses. Uh, some of you have read the text ahead of time and you're hoping to get answers to all the questions that you had that, that arose in your mind. Let me say from the outset that I will not be able to answer all your questions. You will still have questions at the end. And, and there are things that uh, not, not only due to my ignorance, but also just due to time that we will not be saying that could be said. Uh, and we may revisit this text again uh, to cover some of those other things. The first commentary that I read in preparation for this sermon really surprised me because it's, it, it made a, a statement that, that I don't often hear. It stated that these verses are the most difficult verses to deal with in all of Peter's writings and perhaps in all of the Bible. And I, I thought that was shocking when I read that in that first commentary and then the second commentary and then the third commentary and subsequent commentaries all said the same thing. This text that we deal with today is either the most difficult or at least one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. And these comments struck fear in the heart of this preacher. But the more I studied and the more I read men saying things like this, the more I relaxed because... This text and the answers that come to our mind, if, if those questions can't be, I said the answers, the questions that come to our mind, if those questions can't be answered by the best minds throughout Christian history, if, if R.C. Sproul, who was a great theological mind, said he had some thoughts on the text was, but, but was unable to hold his opinion with a real sense of certainty, he followed up by saying that he would ask Peter when he got to heaven. <laughs> that would be the first thing he'd ask Peter about this text. Um, I think that he's probably taking up his time in worshiping the Savior and hasn't gotten to ask Peter anything yet. But but if, if the greatest theological minds have trouble dealing with this, I relaxed because I'm not going to answer all those questions. Uh, there's, there's no way we're going to answer all of the difficulties, and I think as we work through this, we'll see, uh, we'll see why. So suffice it to say, if I can't answer all the questions, I will not be making sweeping dogmatic statements about these verses today. Now, I'm telling you, this is difficult to deal with. I'm not going to make sweeping dogmatic, but, but I think we will see that there is benefit for us today. So here's the plan for us this morning. I want to spend a little time drawing our attention to the questions that we should be asking when we come to this text and presenting some of the various views on how to answer those questions. But then I'd like to come back to the text with and to the context with a focus on the main point that Peter is making here. And in doing this, I believe that we will find that even without all our questions answered, this text is truly profitable for us. I mean, that is the promise of Scripture, that it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And I think we will find this text to be profitable. So now we'll read the verses, 
And then we'll pray and ask God's blessing on his word this morning. First Peter chapter three, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also hath, hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the longsuffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein a few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Corresponding to that, even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of filth from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. God, we pray your blessing on this text. We pray that you would help us this morning, keep us from error, help us open our eyes of faith, open our ears to hear your voice and let us see the truth and the benefit that we find here in this text. We pray this in Christ's name. Creeds and confessional statements. Uh, that's something that I was not brought up with in church. I never heard of creeds uh, or, or confessions. Uh, but creeds and confessional statements have been used by the church almost from the very beginning as teaching aids and often as a hedge against error or heresy, heretical doctrine that had crept into the church. The Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest statements of this kind, and we don't know exactly how far it dates back, but if it doesn't date all the way back to the Apostles, it dates back pretty nearly to the Apostles. As church history progressed, more statements and clearer statements, which we know means longer statements, were needed. So we not only have the Apostles' Creed, we have the Nicene Creed, we have the Athanasian Creed. We hear those coming up in our worship services, that we use them in our confession of faith, uh, in, in our public worship. The Apostles' Creed, we don't know when it came about, but it's very, very old. The Nicene Creed came about in 325 AD. The Athanasian Creed in the 5th century when evil men schemed to introduce error into the church by playing with biblical words and their meanings, it became necessary to write statements that would highlight their errors and those heresies. These creeds began with broad statements like the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is, is something that is professed or confessed by all Christians everywhere, and we can all agree with the statements that it makes like this. We believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Everyone who claims to be a Christian can agree with those statements, but they're broad. And later, new challenges arose to sound biblical doctrine and 
more needed to be said. So we have with the Nicene Creed and with the Athanasian Creed, many more words, much more is said. For example, rather than that relatively short statement from the Apostles' Creed, we read this about Jesus in the Nicene. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary was made man. So it's a more comprehensive statement, more detailed. The point is that creedal statements have been very useful and very important to the church and to the Christian faith from the very beginning. Scholars generally agree that what we have read, these statements in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, were borrowed either from a creedal statement or perhaps from a hymn of the day. The structure and the vocabulary, the Greek vocabulary in these verses is very different from the rest of Peter's letter. So this is a different kind of text. And this text leaves us with some questions. One commentator called them riddles, which is to say that they are mystifying and difficult. Some of the questions which come up, some of the questions that we should be asking as we read this text, are these prepositional phrases to be understood, particularly in verse 18, to be understood as in the Spirit or by the Spirit? Was Jesus made alive in the Spirit or by the Spirit? The Greek is not clear as to how this is to be understood. I think as we work through it, we will have a pretty good idea. But the Greek is not immediately clear as to how we're to understand these prepositional phrases. Then Jesus preached, it says. Jesus proclaimed. To whom did Jesus preach? Did Jesus preach to, some believe, dead saints? Some believe dead sinners. Some believe Jesus preached to demons. Some believe that this is Jesus preaching to living people. So to whom did Jesus preach? What is the proximity of Jesus preaching? Where did Jesus preach? It says he preached to the spirits in prison. What is this prison? Is it the grave? Is it hell? Is it paradise or Abraham's bosom? Is it those who are in prison in bondage to sin here on earth? What is the proximity of Jesus preaching? What is the content of Jesus preaching? What is it that he proclaimed? He went and made a proclamation. What did he proclaim? Is this preaching evangelistic preaching? Or is this a proclamation of victory? What, what is the content of Jesus' proclamation? When did Jesus preach? You can almost go through who, what, when, where. When did Jesus preach? Is this proclamation in his earthly ministry? 
Is this between his death and resurrection? Or is this something that Jesus has done throughout human history? When did this occur? None of these questions are easily answered by quick cursory reading of the text. Is this text teaching that sinners are saved and cleansed from sin by immersion into water? By bath- is this text teaching that water baptism is salvific? These are questions that we should ask. Now, some of those you think, well, I think I already know the answer to that. But when we deal with a text like this, we need to, we need to dig in and we need to, to prove those things. So perhaps we can already see why this text is very difficult to handle properly. Uh, I'd like to look at a few of these questions and, and see in a little more detail how a difference in understanding this text can bring us to some very different and sometimes awful conclusions. So, so what I want us to do is set up some boundaries that we can say these things are in bounds, these things are within the realm of orthodoxy, but there are some things that people read this text and they walk away and they're out of bounds. So we want, we want to see that. So first, in verse 18, and we're just going to work through this, in verse 18, speaking of Jesus, the text said he was put to death in the flesh, you see that, but made alive. Now most of your Bibles probably say in the spirit, Brother Gordon says by the spirit. I know what Bible he has. <laughs> Put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit or by the spirit. Now, does this make a difference? Yeah, prepositional phrases can make a big difference. And, and this preposition, is it to be understood in the spirit or by the spirit? The Greek is not very clear. And that's why some people, most of your Bibles probably say in the spirit. And some of our Bibles say by the spirit. And there are no capital letters in Greek. Unless you're talking about a proper name, there's no capitalization because the, wouldn't that make it easy? Some of your Bibles may have, he was made alive by the spirit and spirit is capitalized. And some of your Bibles say he was made alive in the spirit and spirit is not capitalized. Did we see what's happening there? That's a little bit of interpretive work done by the translators. Sometimes they have to do that. That interpretive work, if, if spirit is capitalized in your Bible, your translators of your version are saying, this is the Holy Spirit. And if it's lowercase, then those translators are saying, we think this is Christ Jesus human spirit that we're speaking of. So there's no capital letters in the Greek, so we have to, we have to make some understanding here. King James and New King James say, by the Spirit. New American Standard, ESV, and NIV all say, in the Spirit. In the spirit, lowercase, which would mean we're speaking about Jesus made alive or resurrected in his human spirit or soul. Jesus made alive or resurrected in his human spirit. And by the spirit with a capital S would mean that Jesus is made alive or resurrected by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. The translation and understanding of our modern English Bibles, when it says in the spirit with a lowercase s, becomes for us problematic. To say that Jesus' death in the flesh, that the Jesus after his death in the flesh was made alive in the spirit, 
He is made alive in his human soul. That would teach us something that does not square with the other scriptures about human death. The Bible teaches us that the human spirit, the human soul does not die. For the Christian, we just read earlier, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in spirit and there is no death of the spirit. There is a death of the body, no death of the spirit. And for the unbeliever to be absent from the body is to be present in hell. Remember the rich man and Lazarus and, and, and the scripture says about the rich man who died in he died in the flesh and in hell he lifted up his eyes. For the saved person to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For the lost person to be absent from the body is to be present in hell. The human spirit does not die. So Jesus was not made alive in the spirit because he was never dead in the spirit. He took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. His body died. His soul did not die. So he was not made alive in the spirit. It's going to be okay with me if you just take your pen and change that to say, by the Spirit and write a capital S. It's going to be all right with me. Jesus never died in the Spirit, so he couldn't be made alive in the Spirit. But the Scripture does very plainly teach that Jesus was raised by the work and power of the Holy Spirit. After Jesus' death in the flesh, he was made alive by the capital S Spirit. And we know that the Bible speaks of all three persons of the Trinity being active in Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just done by one person of the Trinity. But this here is an appropriation of the resurrection to the Holy Spirit. And it fits, it squares with Roman 8, Romans 8, which also teaches us that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So we can see. Also, look at the next phrase, by which he went and preached. So if he was, he was raised or resurrected in the spirit by which he went and preached. Or if he was raised by the Holy Spirit and then by the Holy Spirit's power, he went and preached. That makes more sense that he went with the power of the Holy Spirit. Rather than his human spirit. I think that I think that becomes clear. While the prepositional phrases are not clear. While there's no capitalization. I think we do a little work here. And we massage it. I think it comes to us to say this is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Boy this is in depth. This is tedious. We don't normally do this. But I think we need to work through some of this. Uh, for just a moment. So bear with me. Secondly verse 19. By which that is. By the Holy Spirit. He Jesus went and preached. Unto the spirits in prison. Here's where scholars have spilled volumes of ink. Emphatically answering the question. Where did Jesus preach? And to whom was he preaching? And what is the message that he brought? And some fall into great error. In interpreting this. Some find here. And I believe it is a great error. They find in this. A middle place. Between life and on earth and eternity. A place where sinners might find a second chance. Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. And they were in this middle place between life on earth and 
heaven and hell, and, and they had a second chance here because after they had rejected Jesus in their life on earth, now they have opportunity to hear Jesus preaching an evangelical call. He's evangelizing them to make a post-death decision to accept Jesus as their Savior. He's evangelizing them, some say, and I believe in great error, to make a decision for Christ after their death. You might think the word purgatory. We wouldn't be far off. We've often said that purgatory has no basis in the Bible. But those who try to make purgatory a real thing try to take it from verses like this. I think still they ultimately fail. Some have tried to teach that, that because of this kind of verse that Jesus goes and preaches and gives Sinners after death, a second opportunity. What that means is that hell is ultimately empty. Because given enough time and enough minor torment in this middle place, everyone will be saved. An empty hell. What a, what a thing. An empty hell and an overcrowded heaven. It may seem good to our senses to think about that, but the Bible is very clear that there are men and women now in hell. And the torments that they face are not minor. They are eternal. This whole idea of a second chance to be saved after death, a second opportunity is not in keeping with the Bible's teaching. For it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. Not, not, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, a second chance, and after that, judgment. No, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So I think those who see this as Jesus preaching to those in a middle place, and giving them a second chance at salvation. I think that is a great error that is not in keeping with scripture. Others see these verses. Jesus going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison. They see this as Christ after his death. Uh, having a literal descent into hell. A literal descent. And some of you know that we proclaim in the apostles creed. He descended into hell. And different people believe that means different things. Some people believe he descended into hell means that his life on earth was a living hell. I don't believe that is the case. Some believe that on the cross he was separated from God on the cross and that that is hell separation from God. I think that is more in keeping with, with what we could believe. But I also, um, if, if, you're, if you're interested in this, there's a book that Brother Jeff can recommend to you from Sam Renahan, Dr. Renahan has written a book that's very interesting. And I would say while we're on this subject that I personally hold to a literal descent of Christ into hell, but I don't find it in these verses. I don't think it fits here. I think these verses speak to something else. But some believe that this literal descent of Christ into hell is exactly what is spoken of here. Those who hold this view would point us to the fact that the verb to proclaim or to preach is not the verb to evangelize. 
So they would say that this proclamation is not a gospel preaching, but that it is an announcement of victory. Declaring Jesus to be victorious over death, hell, and the grave. To proclaim the power of sin to be broken over all who are in Christ. This preaching is a preaching of judgment and doom for all the enemies of Jesus. However you see this, we know absolutely that Jesus did not go to hell as a captive or as an inmate. He went to hell if he went to hell as King of Kings and Lord of Lords as victor over his enemies. So this preaching would be then, in this view, to fallen angels, to demons, proclaiming himself as victor. Martin Luther supposedly said that if Jesus literally descended into hell, he spent three days there thumbing his nose at the devil. Now, I, I, I think that's important for us because there are men who are preaching false gospels today. Kenneth Copeland is the name. I won't tell the name, but that's the name. Kenneth Copeland teaches that Jesus went to hell and suffered and paid for sin in hell. That is absolutely not fitting with scripture. When Jesus died on the cross, he said what? It is finished. And what that means, if you look at the Greek, it means it's finished. He was done. That's it. No more suffering. No more re-crucifying. No more, no more payment. The payment was done. So Martin Luther's comment if Jesus went to hell, he went to hell thumbing his nose at the devil. Still others see these verses as speaking of preaching as a means of grace. And, and I think this is where I find myself. As this text speaks of Jesus preaching to the spirits, we bring up Noah's day. And, and what, what I believe this is saying to us here is Jesus was preaching to the spirits in prison, those spirits in the bondage of sin and lostness, and Jesus was preaching to them through Noah. This is evangelizing. But the proclamation of Jesus Christ was done by the mouthpiece of Noah. Now, this lines up with what we just read earlier from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, where Paul says, We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. This is God speaking through us, Paul says. God speaking through the preacher. And this also would be spoken of in Ephesians 2. Where we read that Jesus, speaking to the Ephesians, speaking to those saints at Ephesus, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. But we know that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, never went to Ephesus. So how did Jesus preach to the Ephesians if he never went there? He preached through the mouth of Paul. He preached through the preacher. And what was heard was the voice of Christ. This also lines up with Romans 10. There are other places that we could go. But, but here in 1 Peter 3, we learn that Jesus is preaching and that Jesus preached through Noah. But there's no mistaking that it is Jesus who preaches. Now, beloved, this is very important for us to understand. This is why I thought working through this tedium was, was important. 
We need to understand why we are here each and every Sunday. If you would come here to listen to what I have to say. Let's just say that's not the best use of your time. If you go to any church to hear any man speak for an hour from his own knowledge and experience, then we should all find something better to do. But, but if we come and through the pastor, the word of God is proclaimed and Christ Jesus himself speaks to the heart of every believer, to those who have been walking with him and to those who he is calling out of the world to follow him. If it is Jesus who is speaking, that is a different event. The preaching event is a supernatural event. It is the hearing of the voice of King Jesus. It is listening for the still small voice of our Lord, our God, as he makes proclamation to us. Now that's worth coming for. Amen. To hear a man speak. Maybe we only come to church a few times a year. Maybe. But to hear the voice of Christ. How often should you show up for that? Should we send our children and our teenagers and sometimes our college students to another place that they can have another meeting in a different place while we have preaching here? Don't, don't we want our children to be here when Christ speaks? Should, should we come where Christ is going to speak? Should we come distracted? Should we come so sleepy and tired because we... Stay up too late on Saturday night and we can hardly keep our eyes open and we can't concentrate. Should we come preoccupied so that we are not listening to the proclamation of Jesus Christ? Jesus is preaching to those spirits in prison. Third, let us consider the next difficult section. Verse 21, it says, even now baptism saves you. You all know that we teach that water baptism does not, excuse me, does not save a person. So how are we to understand this statement, baptism now saves you? Well, I'd like for us to look at the greater context. I think that'll help us a lot. We'll begin in verse 19. In which of the spirit, in which he also went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while he was preparing, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, or brought safely through the water. Or saved through water. Continuing. In correspondence to that. Even baptism now says. So there's a connection being made here. Remember this is a creedal statement. Or perhaps a hymn. So we see in this. A, a kind of a poetry. Kind of a poetic language. This connection made. Between Noah. And that whole water event. And Jesus. 
and the baptism of believers. The connection between Noah and Noah's family who was saved through the water. Now he saves you through baptism. Not that the waters of baptism are alone enough to save, but that baptism pictures a cleansing of sin. It pictures something that is a spiritual reality. I, I think, and I, this is not in my notes, but I just want to put this here. We also have to ask, when we see the word baptism in Scripture, we have to ask, is this speaking of baptism in water? Because water is mentioned with the Noah Reference, but water is not mentioned with now baptism saves you, is this baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a different thing than baptism in water. So we have to ask that. But this text, I, I think this text makes it clear that, that water baptism does not save you because he says, not the cleansing of dirt from the flesh. We're not talking about the cleansing of dirt from the flesh, but he says, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal to God for a good conscience. Let's think about that statement. This is the sinner's plea in salvation. God, I see my sin. I see the guilt that I've inherited from Adam. And I see the sinful way that I've lived my life. My conscience is pricked that I owe you perfect obedience. And I have fallen so far short of the glory that you deserve. So now I'm pleading the blood of Jesus Christ as payment for my sin. I'm pleading the righteousness of Jesus Christ as my own. I appeal to you to save me and give me a good conscience the conscience of a redeemed child of God. Do you see, I, I think this is speaking of something in baptism that is more than just being dunked in water. There's something here in this appeal to God for a good conscience. This text cannot, by the way, teach that water baptism saves because that would contradict other scriptures. By the works of the flesh shall no man be justified. And we know that the thief on the cross was not baptized. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So he was in heaven by the declaration of Jesus. But this text does teach that a sinner's appeal to God and that being rooted and grounded in the resurrection of Jesus is our cry in salvation. So we've got these difficulties. Let's sum it up and get to the, all, all of this introduction. We'll get now to the, to the main point here. So we need to see what we can know from this text. Peter has been, in the, in the larger part of this letter, he has been speaking to these Christians and to us about sufferings which are common to this world and some sufferings which are particular to the disciples of Jesus Christ who will suffer even for doing what is right. He's been speaking to them about sufferings. And, and in these verses, he reminds us of Noah. God saved Noah and his family through a worldwide catastrophic flood. That was a big deal. That was a hardship. God saved Noah and his family through that. And he will save you too. That's the point here. Look at the beginning in verse 18. Christ suffered once for sin. I think I want to come back and preach this first part again because Christ suffered. I'm just going to keep going. Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. 
that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. Christ suffered to save us and he will bring us to God. Whatever happens in this life, whatever sufferings, whatever hardship, whatever persecutions, they are temporary. We are Christians. We are being ushered into the presence of God. That's what's happening. Christ died so that he could bring us to God. Suffering and death for most Christians throughout history and most Christians today, suffering and death is the door, is the pathway to God's presence. I remember one preacher saying, we spend more time praying to keep saints out of heaven than we do to keep sinners out of hell. Think about that. Have you ever prayed for a dear, sweet saint who is either elderly or sick and prayed, God, take them. That would be best for them and it would glorify me. Our suffering, boy, we whine a lot, don't we? Get me out of this, God. Get me out of this. And it may be ushering us right into his presence. God saved Noah. And he'll save you too. Don't get bogged down with the suffering of this world. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Remember that he died and saved us to bring us to God. Now, sinner... This encouraging news is not for everyone. It's only for those who have repented of their sin and believed in Jesus. For the lost man or woman, the sufferings of this life are only a warm-up for the eternal torments of hell. But for those who will place their faith in Jesus, because he died to save us, and he rose that, that, that he would demonstrate his victory over sin and death and hell and the grave. Those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ, this is for them. This is for you. So, sinner, won't you today hear the voice of Jesus Christ calling you to turn from your sin and to come to him for salvation. He saved Noah through the flood. He saved the three Hebrew boys through the fiery furnace. He saved others and he will save you too. If you will repent and believe in him. God, we pray that you would work in our hearts. That you would help us. We pray that your word here would, would pierce, would convict of sin and righteousness and of coming judgment by the work of your Holy Spirit. God, for your people where we have whined, where we have cried, where we have been discontent with what you have given us, forgive us. Help us to see that the sufferings of this life are so minor, so temporary, just a moment, just a vapor, and we'll be with you. 
God, we pray that you would convict sinners and bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name, for his kingdom's sake.